So, um, back again to Exodus. We're now in lesson number 10 um, of this part of the program anyway. Um, you will see from the summary, David Woods put this subject breakdown together, and you will see from number 10 that he's given it a title, Everyone Matters to God, The Genealogy of Moses and Aaron, Ordinary People in an Extraordinary Plan. And we're looking at um, the second half of Exodus chapter 6. Confession time. <laughs> I don't know what you do when you come to genealogies, um, but it's kind of the easiest thing in the world to at best skim them, um, at worst jump completely. Um, so I was kind of thinking, David, what have you given me this one for? <laughs> um, but I found the study really helpful and I'd like to, to share it with you. In fact, I've given it a new title. Um, instead of David's rather convoluted one, Everyone Matters to God, The Genealogy of Moses and Aaron, Ordinary People in an Extraordinary Plan, it's perspective. <laughs> so, first of all, um, a very, very brief recap. Amidst doubt, this is Moses' doubt and the people's doubt about whether God really is behind this uh, deliverance from Egypt plan, God teaches Moses a lesson that he's already taught Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And that lesson is, I am El Shaddai, that is the God of supreme almighty power, but I'm also Yahweh, that is the covenant God who delivers on every promise he makes. And by the way, Moses, and by the way, my people Israel, here's eight of those promises for you to think about. You will see what I will do to Pharaoh. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will, give, I will be your God. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand. And I will give it to you as your own possession. So Moses and Israel... Remember Yahweh, remember these promises, and I will deliver on the promises. And we move to the second half of Exodus chapter 6. It occurred to me that we, we consider the book of Exodus as an amazing true story about the deliverance of God's people from slavery in Egypt and what happens next. However... Another take on Exodus is it's um, Moses' own autobiography. Um, we learn from several references in the New Testament, including direct statements from the Lord, that um, the law, those first five Old Testament Jewish books, were from Moses. So Moses is the author. Now, I was kind of letting my imagination go and thinking, well, how did Moses put together the story of the Exodus. Did he, um, did he keep a journal every day? And then at the end, it just all got compiled. Um, maybe he just had a, a time every now and again where he reflected and scribbled down his memoirs, um, and then they got consolidated at some point. Either way, 
Um, the point is that we are at a time in the story as Moses recounts his own experience of his interaction with God and it's on the brink of where, if you like, God's power, the El Shaddai, gets serious. Um, Moses would have been reflecting on those amazing things that he was able to do between him, God and Aaron, where he was um, throwing his stick down and it turns into a serpent and the leprous hand and um, the pouring out of the water that turned to blood. Amazing things. But now he's getting to the point in the story where it all almost you know, takes on a whole new magnitude and dimension as um, God's mighty power um, kind of explodes in a much bigger um, context than what he'd seen so far. So with that in Moses' mind, this is where the story really starts. He um, interposes, is that the right word? I don't know, interjects his own genealogy. You might think, what a strange thing to do. Um, with that background, let's read um, Exodus chapter 6. I'm very hesitant to, the, to do this. In fact, I almost um, was going to play an online recording of it because some of these names um, have defeated me so far. But we will um, bear with those. Um, notice also that we've got the genealogy um, between what I'll call two bookends, and the two bookends are verse 13 and verse 30. So Exodus 6, verse 13. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. These were the heads of their families. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel, were Hanok and Palu, Hezron and Carmi. These were the clans of Reuben. The sons of Zimeon, Simeon were Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Dakin, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These were the clans of Simeon. These were the names of the sons of Levi, according to their records. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, Levi lived 137 years. The sons of Gershon by clan were Libni and Shimei. The sons of Kohath were Amran, Ishar, Hebron and Uziel. Kohath lived 133 years. The sons of Merari were Mahli and Mushi. These were the clans of Levi according to their records. Amram married his father's sister Jochebed, who bore him Aaron and Moses. Aram lived 137 years. The sons of Ishar were Korah, Napheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel were Mishael, Elzapan, and Sithri. Aaron married Elisheba, daughter of Aminadab and sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. The sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, and Ibiasaph. These were the Korahite clans. 
Eliezer, son of Aaron, married one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These were the heads of the Levite families, clan by clan. It was the same. It was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, "Bring the Israelites of Egypt by their divisions." They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. It was this same Moses and Aaron. Now when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? <clears throat> Did you spot the bookends, first of all? The first one, um, before the um, genealogy, is now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron about the Israelites and Pharaoh king of Egypt, and he commanded them to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. So here's a statement. In Moses' mind, it's a direct command that had been asked many times before, and he kind of argued with it, and now Moses in his recollection is saying, so the Lord reiterates his command to go and do this then we get the genealogy and then we have it was this same Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions it's almost as though as Moses describes his version of his genealogy that he says I got this instruction which you might think is amazing as I did and actually, it's even more amazing when you see where I came from. Here's my genealogy. But yes, despite my genealogy, um, it really was me and my brother Aaron that God did these amazing things through. So already, I'm kind of putting a bit of a negative spin on this genealogy. It makes me ask the question, um, why, what's the purpose of a genealogy? Here's a really interesting verse. It's in 1 Timothy 3. Paul says, I, urge you, I urged you when you went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer and not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. So, wow, there's a statement from the Apostle Paul saying to Timothy, actually, you know, you've got these men who were... Um, in the minutiae, that's a word, of genealogies. And actually, it's a waste of time. So, um, <coughs> and, and encourage them not to do that. And here's Mr. Woods giving me this topic of the genealogies of Moses. And I, for me, the point is, um, genealogies are not there to occupy endless hours of, of meditation. I'm going to propose four reasons why they're there. Um, the first is they're there as a historical record that demonstrates the accuracy of God's word. Um, and that's there for the doubters. So if there is any kind of scepticism around the accuracy of God's word, actually explore the genealogy. And it's amazing. It all ties up. One point. Second point is it's a demonstration that God is detail orientated and um, that's really special because it means God is interested in people and um, you know we can without 
making a career out of studying genealogies, we can perhaps pick up on a certain name or a certain individual and um, we can explore that one avenue. And it's a demonstration that God is a God of detail and order. Um, it's also a demonstration that the Bible, from a prophetic point of view, um, is true. I guess the most, the most um, obvious example of that are the prophecies of the origin of the Messiah when he would come. And you can trace genealogies um, back and you know the, the Pharisees and the, the Jewish leaders at the time were very skeptical about Jesus because they had a wrong orientation about his the origin of the Messiah from an Old Testament genealogy point of view and that was able to be put right of course so they're there as a, a help to demonstrate the prophetic accuracy of the scriptures and then the final point which uh, links to an earlier one about the interest of uh, God's interest in people. If you take the genealogy of the Lord as an example and you can trace it back to Rahab, the prostitute, and there are just amazing demonstrations of God's grace as we explore the characters that are in these strings of names that God was able to do amazing things with. And I think that that particular um, purpose is why Moses wanted to emphasize his um, genealogy and his heritage. It's because God has done amazing things with me and my brother and we're not very special and I can prove to you how not very special we are by taking you to my genealogy. Um, the genealogy itself really only explores the three relevant relevant to Moses sons of um, Israel of Jacob and they were Reuben uh, Simeon and Levi these were the three brothers that uh, were the oldest of the twelve and they were the only three sons of Leah um, Jacob's first wife Interestingly, let's go to um, Genesis chapter 49. And this is the blessing that Jacob had for his sons. Actually, in my notes here, I'm, I think it's uh, Genesis 49 verse 1. M maybe verse 2. So Jacob is saying, Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honour, excelling in power. Turbulent as the waters, you will no longer excel. For you went up unto your father's bed, unto my couch, and defiled it. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger 
so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and dispense them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. What a contrast between Judah and um, the statements that uh, Jacob had for Reuben, Simeon and Levi. He was not of, um, how can I say, pedigree that had a strong integrity. Joseph, uh, Moses and Aaron were kind of sons of the worst of the twelve, is my sense that we get here. And uh, Moses is sharing his genealogy because he wants to, remember the, the word perspective, he wants to ensure that the readers of his biography, the readers of this amazing account of God redeeming his people from um, slavery in Egypt, he did it with the least of God's choice, if you like, the choice that he had, the pool of talent, let's put it that way, that God may have chosen from um, the leaders in Israel. That's the, the reason for this genealogy. It's to put Moses and Aaron into perspective. Question, what's my perspective on myself and where I've come from? And your perspective on yourself from um, where you've come from? You have this um, really delicate balance. I've called it um, confidence versus humility and courage versus timidity. It's interesting that later on Moses is described as the meekest man, that's the most humble man in all the earth. And I think he's got a really accurate handle on the significance of his origins. In fact, they're not significant. God was able to, as David has said in his title, do extraordinary things with at best very ordinary men. There's a, a very fine line between being confident and being arrogant. Confidence in a, a Christian context and in our service is about having a Moses type perspective on ourselves. Moses was not confident to start with and he grew into his leadership responsibilities with his people. You could never describe Moses as being an arrogant man. Um, he was both confident, not arrogant, and humble. That's um, about attitude. What about action? Um, I would say he was eventually a courageous man. This is a balance between having courage and being uh, timid. My mind goes to another um, Timothy verse, which is 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, for God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love and self-discipline. I think a lesson for us to take away as we reflect on the man Moses and Aaron, God's choice of leadership amongst his people, and particularly today 
in considering their genealogy, their origin. We need to take away the lesson that they were learning about this balance between um, confidence and humility, uh, courage and timidity. And the, the promise that we have in First Timothy is God is, is, through Paul, is saying to Timothy, I didn't give you a spirit of timidity. I gave you um, a spirit of power, of love and of self-discipline. This was illustrated in Moses and Aaron by the, at least for the most part, dependence on God and his help for what they were doing. I love Acts 4 verse 13. It's another illustration, a New Testament illustration of the courage that comes um, to people who recognise the right perspective on themselves and recognise their calling to God's service. And it's written about the early apostles, Acts 4 verse 13. When they, that's the people around them, saw the courage of Peter and John and realised that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What, what an amazing testimony that Peter and John had. They, um, this is at Pentecost, they were um, confident, not arrogant. They were bold. They were courageous. They weren't timid. Um, and, you know, they weren't there talking about themselves. They were there talking about the amazing person, the Lord Jesus Christ, who they'd come to know. And people observed their courage. And it says they were astonished at their courage. And it was unschooled, ordinary men doing extraordinary things. We could hardly say that uh, Moses was unschooled. He was probably one of the most educated men in Israel because of his early upbringing in Egypt. But I think um, in our study, in our observations of the man, we can be impressed eventually with his courage um, as, from a background point of view, an ordinary man doing extraordinary things. I'd like to um, also draw a parallel with a statement that the Lord makes to his disciples in John chapter 15. Remember, this is all under the umbrella of perspective, or a right perspective that we need to have on ourselves. And the Lord says in uh, John 15, verse 15, very familiar passage, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. <clears throat> you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you <clears throat> whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. It's said of Moses later on in his 40-year um, service leading God's people that God would meet with Moses face to face as a man meets with his friend. And um, just a, an amazing consequence of a 40-year career <laughs> Um, spent in an intimate relationship with God, um, putting his own inhibitions and limitations 
which are well understood, putting them at us aside and stepping up to the plate as far as God is concerned and um, fulfilling God's expectations of him. That's, that was Moses' career for 40 years. And the consequence of doing that is he had a relationship with God that was described as God speaking with him face to face as a man would speak with his friend. And the Lord says to his disciples, you're not my servants. Actually, we're kind of, you are in a sense, but we've gone a level, our relationship has gone a level richer than that. You're my friends. And uh, maybe a servant doesn't learn the detail of his master's plan. A friend does. And here is a, a man at the beginning of this 40-year career. And because of his attitude, because of his perspective on himself, and his eventual realisation that, yes, God has chosen me, and he is enabling me to do these things, he was um, then known as the friend of God. One of the things that is unique about Christian faith comes out of uh, John 15, verse 16. You didn't choose me, but I chose you. A lot, a lot of faiths out there, um, the, pun, the kind of umbrella statement is, you know, um, this faith will teach you how to find God. Um, the Lord, when he met Zacchaeus, um, and, you know, he stopped under the tree and he looked up, and um, the Lord says, I came to seek and to save what was lost. Zacchaeus was on the lookout, for sure, but um, it was Zacchaeus that was found by the Lord. And what a wonderful perspective for us to have on, on our Christian lives and our relationship with God. In an amazing way, I haven't found him. He chose me. Um, I didn't choose him, but he chose me. And this, again, we, I'm reluctant with the following statement because if it doesn't come out right, it can be arrogant. But it, it's meant in a spirit of confidence and courage that how can I criticise God's choice of me? Um, he chose me because he has a job for me to do and with his spirit will enable me to do it. And that's the wonder of um, John 15. You didn't chose me, choose me, but I chose you and have um, appointed you, anointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. It makes me um, go to another verse that has become quite precious to me. Um, and actually I'll show the background to it a little bit because it's a, a little Burma story. One of the benefits, and you can look it up while I'm talking, it's Philippians 4 and 19. One of the benefits, um, great privileges that those of us who have been able to go to Burma have is we're, if you like, ambassadors of the rest of the churches of God and we go um, with money. And part of our responsibility is to try and discern the worthy causes of the Lord's money that have been given by the likes of you and others in, amongst God's people. And there's a real risk 
that our friends in Burma and other places as well where this happens, they kind of see the money and think, um, you're so kind. And um, it's no, it's not me, it's not my money. It's God's money and it's my privilege to help dispense it on his behalf and behalf of your brothers and sisters. And this verse came to me, um, it says, um, sorry, it's, it's um, I'm, I'm thinking of Philippians 4 verse 13. My God will supply every need of yours in Christ Jesus. And it's a great, it's a great um, statement the way it's worded. Uh, Paul saying, my God will supply every need of yours. And that's the, the message to the friends in Burma. It's my God and your God, their God, that supplies every need of yours. And it's a, it's a takeaway verse for our discussion and our study of Moses because that's the lesson he learned. That in all of his need, the lack in his own view of his ability to talk and his maybe his lack of presence or whatever it might have been as he was given this amazing task to do, his experience was that his God would supply every need that he had. And I think that's really important for us to um, celebrate that when we see ourselves in the right perspective as God's amazing sovereign choice not because there's anything special about us, but because we're unschooled, ordinary people. Um, he is able to supply all the need that we have. And then to Philippians 4 and 19, which is um, a statement of Paul's confidence. The context in Philippians 4 is about churches of God giving gifts to Lord's servants. It's a very kind of contemporary situation as well. And Paul is saying to the people in Philippi who've been very generous in the past, you know, I know what it's like to be in need and I know what it's like to be in plenty. Um, and um, my God is able to supply every need. And then in that context where he has been reflecting on his need, in this case material need, he says, I can do all things uh, through Christ who gives me strength. And... Um, Interestingly, it doesn't say I can do anything or I can do everything. Um, it's not like a license to do um, whatever we fancy doing. It is a statement of fact that in our circumstances, wherever we might find ourselves, and I'm talking about God's service, um, he will enable us to do everything he expects us to do. Um, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So um, I feel in, in our study of Exodus, we're almost getting to a point, and we said this last week, where we've been focused on God's dealings with individuals, specifically Moses and Aaron. And he's taught Moses about his promises. He's taught Moses about his power. Uh, Moses has a right perspective on himself demonstrated by his um, description of his genealogy um, and it's in that context that he can now go forward as God's man, God's ambassador 
and as God's chosen leader for his people. And we can take our study forward with that in mind. Shall we pray?